Now, the person being interviewed in this clip is Marty Kagan, who himself is a huge authority on products. But he's here commenting on Steve Jobs' The Last Interview, which was recently released uh, across all the major streaming platforms. And Steve usually talks about his specific products, but never about the product's process itself, except in his interview. So here's Marty's recap of Steve's product thinking. My purely anecdotal guess is uh, maybe 10 to 15% are good product companies, something like that. Sweet. I love that there's a number. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows? Who knows? It could be orders of magnitude off. Seems seems reasonable. So a lens that I, I want to use for uh, part part of the rest of our chat is this documentary that you've been recommending in some of your writing that I recently watched, and I'm really excited to chat about it. It's a documentary called The Lost Interview, where they interview Steve Jobs after he was fired from Apple, but before he came back to run Apple. And there's a ton of insights that you've been able to extract that I also loved listening to and, and thinking about, and I'm excited to kind of chat through this. So First question is just, what about this interview has struck you most um, initially, broadly? Yeah. Well, I, I, one of the reasons I loved it is, you know, he very rarely talked about product. He, talked, he loved to talk about his products, right? He loved to talk about why the iPhone was awesome, why the iPod was awesome, why the Mac was awesome. But the nature of building products was not. I mean, that was sort of his you know, secret sauce, if you will, is he had a very good insights to this. And so to find this hour plus interview where he's very thoughtful, very sort of, um, you know, he had had a chance to kind of think through what went well, what went wrong. And one of the, to answer your question, you know, in my own writing, and in fact, in the recent book, Empowered, I share my theory for why there's such a big difference between the best and the rest. In other words, why, why isn't every company trying to work like the best companies? I'm, I mean, why not? Your value, look at the valuation they get. For, for money alone, you'd think it would do that. And my best sort of theory was that, well, the biggest reason I see is that they, they've never worked at a company like that. So they don't know what it looks like. They don't know what good looks like. And then I watched this video, which, as you know, sort of surfaced, resurfaced recently. And it's it. He Steve Jobs shared his theory from 1995, for God's sakes. And I'm listening to it and I'm going, oh, my God, his theory is better than my theory for sure. And it's still more relevant. And I would say of all the things and he talks about product discovery. He talks about process people. He talks about all these really relevant topics. But the one that struck me the most was his theory for why there are so many bad product companies. And his theory was, and I, by the way, I don't want, I hope everybody that's listening to your podcast, it costs $4 to rent this on Amazon Prime. Definitely you should watch it, the whole thing. So don't let my summary discourage you. It's worth watching. But anyway, he shares that he thinks what happens in general is companies get bigger you know, obviously they wouldn't have got big if they didn't have a decent product at one point or another. But what he was talking about is the same thing I am. Why is it that so many companies lose that mojo? And his argument was because as a company gets bigger, product 
historically became less important. The people in a company that would be that would be celebrated were marketing people, salespeople, finance people. These are people that because at you know at, if a company stops innovating, these are the engines for growth, right? Sales, marketing, or not growth with finance, but cutting costs and. And his argument was, this, this happens over time. Pretty soon, these are your leaders. They're the ones that have been promoted. So then what happens? Good product people don't want to work there anymore. And they leave. And they go to a company that values product. I think that's a better explanation than any other that I've heard. And it was so prescient because when he said this, this had yet to even happen to so many other companies, but it still happens all the time. I wrote an article a while ago called Devolving from Good to Bad that was observing some of this, but he really tapped into it. And honestly, I think he's spot on. I like that he describes these as diseases of a company. They own like enough market share. This is what happens. There's just growth is happening. They're winning. They don't need to keep innovating. And it becomes this disease and it's a really powerful way of thinking about it that you want to try to keep this disease from taking taking over your your culture and, and product and company. And I think there's like market share and then just generally it happens the company's just doing well. Things are going well. We let's just keep at it. Let's not break anything. Why launch something risky and and new? And why not just keep selling this thing that everyone seems to want? And actually, Lenny, I think it's worth highlighting because that is an anti-pattern I see a lot, especially after the founders leave. You know how a lot of times in product we'll talk about there's there's value creation activities, there's value capture activities. Discovery is all about value creation. Optimization is all about value capture. And bo they're both great. Absolutely, you should do both. But so many companies after the founders leave, they're scared. They're literally scared. The product teams are scared. The executives are scared. And the reason they're scared is because they don't know what, is essential and what is incidental. They're scared they're going to like hurt the thing that's fueling the business. Now, of course, the founders knew the thing because they were there from the beginning. They have all this institutional knowledge. They know what's important. They know what's not. And, and they have that confidence. Sometimes we talk about the moral authority of the founder. They, they know and they know deeply what is essential and what's not. But when they're gone, very often we see companies that are scared. I, I can tell because all they're doing is little low-risk, optimizely A-B tests. You know, they're just doing these little A-B tests. They're just tweaking um, the 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 workflows, the main flows, growth, you know, retention. They're just tweaking. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. But those things will not innovate. They will not cause major improvements to the company. And it, so once they stop doing real discovery, to me, it's just the beginning of the end. What's interesting there is if folks at the top are kind of running out of ideas or not confident about where to go, you'd think they would empower their teams on the ground to figure out what to do. Instead, they turn into these top-down feature teams and they tell them, oh, let's just build this thing. It's, like, I don't know, but it's probably the best idea and I probably know more than you do. And they don't. And in fact, that was one of the diseases that Steve Jobs highlighted in that interview. He called it the disease of, uh, of the stakeholders, of the managers, where they think 
that an idea is 90% of the work. And that's how he called it out. And he's like, you don't, they don't understand. The idea is minor. The idea is just the start. I think he said, you know, it is like the whole craftsmanship of going from an idea to a product. This is what we call product discovery. He was describing product discovery and how things change constantly with every iteration. You make trade-offs. It starts off one way. It ends up another way. And of course, he's pointing out that most of these you know, executives have no idea, no appreciation for that's actually how you get a great product. It's not that a bunch of executives go in a room and they come up with their prioritized list of features and then they just tell the teams to build them. In fact, we know at this point, only about 20% of those things will generate any kind of positive return. So you'd think there's enough evidence out there that they would realize that was fatal. But I think it's a lot of arrogance because every executive thinks they're smarter than every other one. And so theirs are the better ideas. But it's really not that way. I mean, good product teams and good product companies know that an idea is just sort of the, the very sparkle in the eye. It's just the start. Getting to a product is what matters. And that's work. I think there's this definite phenomenon of caretaker CEO, the CEO who's hired in after to essentially not rock the boat too much and just to execute and extract everything that was laid out before. Um, and it's not just limited to CEOs, it's also limited to uh, executives and you know people like myself. I, I definitely feel like when I come into a company and I see existing processes and I'm like, you know, don't fix what isn't broken. It doesn't seem super broken. Um, I may have other ideas I might want to try, but it's not worth trying those ideas out because I don't have the full context. I need to take time to ramp it up. And I think Marty's point about how executives take a lot of time to do research when founders you know, know what they want because they were there from the beginning. I think that is something that people do a lot as managers and as executives, which is to buy time because every month that they don't do something is a month that you know subpar results or lack of spectacular results cannot be blamed on them because they're just coming in and inheriting a bunch of stuff. So I think it's a good point. I'm not sure exactly how to execute on that because it's one thing to say it, but then it's another thing to actually have good ideas, uh, which he didn't really comment on in this interview. I'm Bob Cringley. 16 years ago, when I was making my television series, Triumph of the Nerds, I interviewed Steve Jobs. That was in 1995. Ten years earlier, Steve had left Apple following a bruising struggle with John Scully, the CEO he'd brought into the company. At the time of our interview, Steve was running Next, the niche computer company he founded after leaving Apple. Little did we know that within 18 months, he would sell Next to Apple, and six months later, he'd be running the place. The way things work in television, we use only a part of that interview in the series, and for years, we thought the interview was lost forever because the master tape went missing while being shipped from London to the U.S. in the 1990s. Then, just a few days ago, series director Paul Sen found a VHS copy of that interview in his garage. There are very few TV interviews with Steve Jobs and almost no good ones. They rarely show the charisma, candor, and vision that this interview does. And so... To honor an amazing man, here is that interview in its entirety. Most of this has never been seen before. 
So how did you get involved uh, with personal computers? Hmm. Well, um, I ran into my first computer when I was about 10 or 11. Um, and it's hard to remember back then, but I'm, I'm an old fossil now. I'm an old fossil. So when I was 10 or 11, it was about 30 years ago. And no one had ever seen a computer. To the extent that they'd seen them, they'd seen them in movies, and there were these big boxes with whirring... T For some reason, they fixated on the tape drives as being the icon of what the computer was, or, or flashing lights somehow. And so nobody had ever seen one. They're very mysterious, very powerful things that did something in the background. And... Um, so to see one and actually get to use one was a real privilege back then. And I, I got into NASA, Ames Research Center down here, and I got to use a, a time-sharing terminal. So I didn't actually see the computer, but I saw a, a time-sharing terminal. And in those days, again, it's, it's hard to remember how primitive it was. It, there was no such thing as, a, as a, uh, a, a computer with a graphics video display. It was literally a printer. It was a teletype printer with a keyboard on it. So you would keyboard these commands in and then you would wait for a while and then the thing would go and it would tell you something out. But even with that, it was still remarkable, especially for a 10-year-old, that you could write a program in BASIC, let's say, or Fortran, and actually this machine would sort of take your idea and it would, tr it would sort of execute your idea and give you back some results. And if they were the results that you predicted, your program really worked, it was an incredibly thrilling experience. Um, so I became very um, captivated by, by a computer. And a computer to me was still a little mysterious because it was at the other end of this wire and I, I'd never really seen the actual computer itself. And then I got tours of computers after that and saw the insides. And then I was part of this group at Hewlett-Packard. Um, when I was 12, I called up um, Bill Hewlett, who lived in Hewlett-Packard at the time. And again, this dates me, but there was no such thing as an unlisted telephone number then, so I could just look in the book and look his name up. And he answered the phone, and I said, Hi, my name's Steve Jobs. You don't know me, but I'm 12 years old, and I'm, I'm building a, a frequency counter, and I'd like some spare parts. And so uh, he talked to me for about 20 minutes. I, I'll never forget it as long as I live. And he, he gave me the parts, but he also gave me a job working at Hewlett-Packard that summer. And I was, I was 12 years old. And, and that really made a remarkable influence on me. Uh, Hewlett-Packard was really the only company I'd ever seen in my life at that age. And uh, it formed my view of what a company was and how well they treated their employees. You know, uh, at that time, I mean, they didn't know about uh, cholesterol back then, but at that time they used to bring a big cart full of donuts and coffee out at 10 o'clock every morning. Everybody take a coffee and donut break. And just little things like that. It, it was clear that the company was, was, the company recognized that its true value was its employees. So anyway, um, things led to things with Hewlett Packard, and I started going up to their Palo Alto research labs every Tuesday night with a small group of people to meet some of their researchers and stuff. And I saw the first desktop computer ever made, which was the Hewlett-Packard 9100. It was uh, about as big as a suitcase, but it actually had a small cathode ray tube display in it, um, and it was completely self-contained. There was no wire going off behind the curtain somewhere. And, and I fell in love with it. And you could program it in BASIC and APL. And, um, and I would just 
for hours, you know, get, get a ride up to Hewlett Packard and just hang around that machine and write programs for it. And so that was the early days. And, and I met Steve Wozniak uh, around that time, too, maybe, maybe a little early when I was about 14, 15 years old. And we immediately hit it off. He was the first person I'd met that knew more about electronics than I did. And so I, I, was, uh, I liked him a lot. And he was uh, maybe five years older than I. He'd, he'd gone off to college and gotten kicked out for pulling pranks and was living with his parents and going to the DNs of the local junior college. So um, we became fast friends and started doing projects together. We read about, um, we read about the, the story in Esquire magazine about this guy named Captain Crunch who could supposedly make free telephone calls. You've heard about this, I'm sure. And uh, we, again, we were captivated. How could anybody do this? And we thought it must be a, a hoax. And we started looking through the libraries, looking for the secret tones that would allow you to do this. And it turned out we were at Stanford Linear Accelerator Center one night. And way in the bowels of their technical library, way down at the last bookshelf in the, in the corner bottom rack, we found an AT&T technical journal that laid out the whole thing. And, and it's another moment I'll never forget. When we saw this journal, we thought, my God, it's all real. And so we set out to build a device to make these tones. And, and the way it worked was, you know when you make a long-distance call, you used to hear, doo -doo 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 -doo, right in the background? They were tones that sounded like the touch tone you could make on your phone, but they were different frequencies, so you couldn't make them. It turned out that that was the signal from one telephone computer to another controlling the computers in the network. And AT&T made a fatal flaw when they designed the original telephone network, digital telephone network, was they put the signaling from computer to computer in the same band as your voice, which meant that if you could make those same signals, you could put it right in through the handset. And literally, the entire AT&T international phone network would think you were an AT&T computer. So after three weeks, we finally built a box like this that worked. And I remember the first call we made was down to uh, L.A., so one of Waz's relatives down in Pasadena. We dialed the wrong number. But we woke some guy up in the middle of the night, and we were yelling at him, like, don't you understand? We made this call for free. And this person didn't appreciate that. But it was, it was miraculous. And we built these little boxes to do blue boxing, as it was called. And we put a little note in the bottom of them. Our logo was, he's got the whole world in his hands. <laughs> and... They work. We built the best blue box in the world. It was all digital, no adjustments, and um, so you could go up to a payphone and you could, you could, you know, take a trunk over to White Plains and then take a satellite over to Europe and then go to Turkey, take a cable back to Atlanta, you know, and you could go around the world. You could go around the world five or six times because we we learned all the codes for how to get on the satellites and stuff, and then you could call the payphone next door, and so you could shout in the phone and. After about a minute, it would come out the other phone. It was, it was miraculous. Um, and, and you might ask, well, what's so interesting about that? What's so interesting is that we were young, and what we learned was that we could build something ourselves that could control billions of dollars worth of infrastructure in the world. That was what we learned, was that us... Two 
you know, we didn't know much. We could build a little thing that could control a giant thing. And that was an incredible lesson. I don't think there would have ever been an Apple computer had there not been blue boxing. Well, I said you called the Pope. Yeah, we did call the Pope. He, um, he pretended to be Henry Kissinger. And we got the number of the Vatican, and we called the Pope. And he, we, he, they started waking people up in the hierarchy, you know, I don't know, cardinals and this and that. And, and they actually sent someone to wake up the Pope. When, when finally we just burst out laughing, and they realized that we weren't Henry Kissinger. And so we never got to talk to the Pope, but it was very funny. So, so the jump from uh, blue boxes to com personal computers, what, what sparked that? Well, um, necessity, uh, in the sense that w w there was time-sharing computers available. And there was a time-sharing company in Mountain View that we could get free time on. So, um, but we needed a terminal, and we couldn't afford one, so we designed and built one. And that was the first thing we ever did. We built this terminal. And so what an Apple One was, was really an extension of this terminal, putting a microprocessor on the back end. That's what it was. It was really kind of two separate projects put together. So first we built the terminal, and then we built the Apple One. Um, and we... We really built it for ourselves uh, because we couldn't afford to to uh, buy anything, and we'd scavenge parts here and there and, and stuff. And we build these all by hand. I mean, they take you know forty to eighty hours to build one, and then they'd always be breaking because there's all these tiny little wires. And so um, it turned out a lot of our friends wanted to build them too. And although they could scavenge most of the parts as well, uh, they didn't have the sort of skills to build them that we had acquired by training ourselves through building them. And so we ended up helping them build most of their computers, and it was really taking up all of our time. And we thought, you know, if we could make what's called a printed circuit board, which is a piece of fiberglass with copper on both sides that's etched to form the wires so that you could build a computer, one of, you know, you could build an Apple I in a few hours instead of 40 hours. If we, could, if we only had one of those, we could sell them to all our friends for, you know, as much as it cost us to make them and make our money back. Um, and everybody would be happy, and we'd say, you know, we get a life again. Uh, so we did that. Uh, I sold my Volkswagen bus, and Steve sold his calculator, and we got enough money to pay a friend of ours to make a, the artwork to make a printed circuit board. And we made some printed circuit boards, and we, we sold some to our friends. Um, and I was trying to sell the rest of them so that we could get our microbus and calculator back. And I walked into the first computer store in the world, which was the bite shop of... Uh, Mountain View, I think, on El Camino. Uh, I, I, it, it, it metamorphosized into an adult bookstore a few years later. <laughs> but at this point, it was the bite shop. And uh, he, the, the, the person that ran that, I think his name was Paul Terrell, he said, you know, I'll take 50 of those. I said, this is great. He said, but I want them fully assembled. We'd never thought of this before. So we then uh, kicked this around. We thought, why not? Why not try this? And so I spent the next several days on the phone talking with electronics parts distributors. We didn't know what we were doing. And we said, look, here's the parts we need. We, need, we, need, we figured we'd, we'd uh, buy 100 sets of parts, build 50, sell them to the bite shop for twice what it cost us to build them, therefore paying for the whole 100, and then we'd have 50 left, and we could make our profits by selling those. So. Um, 
we convinced these distributors to give us the parts on net 30 days credit. We had no idea what that meant, net 30, sure, sign here. And so we had 30 days to pay them. Um, and so we bought the parts, we built the products, and we sold 50 of them to the bite shop in Palo Alto and got paid in 29 days and then went and paid off the parts people in 30 days. And so we were in business. But we had the classic Marxian profit realization crisis in that our profit wasn't in a liquid currency, our profit was in 50 computers sitting in the corner. So then all of a sudden we had to think, wow, how are we going to realize our profit? And so we started thinking about distribution. Are there any other computer stores? And we started calling the other computer stores that we'd heard of across the country, and, and we just kind of eased into business uh, that way. The third key figure in the creation of Apple was former Intel executive Mike Markala. I asked Steve how he came aboard. We were designing the Apple II, um, and we really had some, some much higher ambitions for the Apple II. Waz's ambitions were he wanted to add color graphics. Uh, my ambition was that it was very clear to me that while there were a bunch of hardware hobbyists that could assemble their own computers or at least take our board and add the transformers for the power supply and the case and the keyboard and go get a, you know, et cetera, go get the rest of the stuff. For every one of those, there were a thousand people that couldn't do that but wanted to mess around with programming. Software hobbyists. Just like I had been when I was, you know, 10, discovering that computer. And so my dream for the Apple II was to sell the first real packaged computer, packaged personal computer, where you didn't have to be a hardware hobbyist at all. And so combining both of those dreams, we actually designed the product. And we, we, I found a designer, and we designed the packaging and everything. And we wanted to make it out of plastic, and we had the whole thing ready to go. But we needed some money for tooling the case and things like that. We needed, we needed a few hundred thousand dollars. And this was way beyond our means. So I went looking for some venture capital. And um, I ran across one venture capitalist named Don Valentine, who uh, came over to the garage, and he later said, I looked like a renegade from the human race. That was his famous quote. <laughs> and he said he wasn't willing to invest in us, but he, he, he recommended a few people that might. And one of them was Mike Markula. So I called Mike on the phone, and Mike came over. And Mike had retired at about 30 or 31 from Intel. He was a product manager there and gotten a little bit of stock and you know, made like a million bucks on stock options, which at that time was quite a lot of money. And, um, and he'd been investing in oil and gas deals and kind of staying home and doing that sort of thing. And he, I think, was, was kind of antsy to get back into something. And Mike and I hit it off very well. Um, and so Mike said, OK, I'll invest after a few weeks. And I said, no. No, we don't want your money. We want you. <laughs> so we convinced Mike to actually throw in with us as an equal partner. And so Mike put in some money, and Mike put in himself, and the three of us went off, and we took this design that was virtually done with the Apple II and tooled it up and uh, announced it um, a few months later at the West Coast Computer Fair. What was that like? It was great. Uh, we got the the best. I mean, this is the West Coast Computer Fair was small at that time, but to us it was very large. And so uh, we had this fantastic booth there. Um, we had a projection television showing the Apple II and showing its graphics, which today look very crude, but at that time were by far the most advanced graphics on a personal computer. And I think you know, my recollection is we stole the show. 
and a lot of dealers and distributors started lining up and we were off and running. How old were you? 21. 21. Yeah. You're 21, you're a big success. You know, you you have no you just sort of done it by the seat of your pants. You don't mm -hmm. have any particular training in this. How do you how do you learn to run a company? Um You know, throughout the years in business, I found something, which was I'd always ask why you do things. And the answers you invariably get are, oh, that's just the way it's done. Nobody knows why they do what they do. Nobody thinks about things very deeply in business. That's what I found. I'll give you an example. Um, when we were building our Apple Ones in the garage, we knew exactly what they cost. Uh, when we got into a factory in the Apple II days, um, the accounting had this notion of a standard cost, where you'd kind of set a standard cost, and then at the end of a quarter, you'd adjust it with a variance. And I kept asking, well, why do we do this? And the answer was, well, that's just the way it's done. And, and after about six months of digging into this, what I realized was the reason you do it is because you don't really have good enough controls to know how much it costs, so you guess, and then you fix your guess at the end of the quarter. And the reason you don't know how much it costs is because your information systems aren't good enough. So, but nobody said it that way. And so later on, when we designed this automated factory for Macintosh, we were able to get rid of a lot of these antiquated concepts and know exactly what something costs to the second. Um, so, in business, a lot of things are, I, I call it folklore. They're done because they were done yesterday and the day before. And so what that means is, is if you're willing to sort of ask a lot of questions and think about things and work really hard, you, you can learn business pretty fast. It's not the hardest thing in the world. It's not rocket science. It's not rocket science, no. Now, when you were first coming in contact with these computers, inventing them, and before that working on the HP 9100, you know, we talk about writing programs. Mm -hmm. What sort of programs? What do people actually do with these things? Mm. See, what we did with them... Well, I'll give you a simple example. When we were uh, designing our blue box, we, used, uh, we wrote a lot of custom programs to help us design it. You know, and to, to uh, do a lot of the, the dog work for us in terms of calculating master frequencies with subdivisors to get other frequencies and things like that. We, we used the computer quite a bit and to calculate, you know, how, how much error we would get in the frequencies and how much could be tolerated. So we used them in our work, but, but much more importantly, it had nothing to do with using them for anything practical. It had to do with using them to be a mirror of your thought process, to actually learn how to think. In other words, I think the greatest value of learning how to, I think everybody in this country should learn how to program a computer, should learn a computer language, because it teaches you how to think. It's like going to law school. I don't think anybody should be a lawyer, but I think going to law school would actually be useful because it teaches you how to think in a certain way, in the same way that computer programming teaches you, in, in a slightly different way, how to think. And so I, I view computer science as a liberal art. It should be something that everybody learns, you know, takes a, takes a year in their life. One of the courses they take is 
you know, learning how to program. Yeah, but I learned APL, which, you know, obviously is part of the reason why I'm going through life sideways. Well, was it in, do you, cons you look back and consider it an enriching experience that taught you to think in a different way or not? Uh, no, not that no? particularly. Okay. Not, not other languages, perhaps more so, yeah. but I started with APL. Uh -huh. um, so, uh, I mean, obviously the Apple II was a, was a terrific success, yeah. just incredibly so, and the company grew like Topsy and eventually went public and mm -hmm. you guys got really rich. What's it like to get rich? It's very interesting. I was worth um, about over a million dollars when I was 23 and over 10 million dollars when I was 24 and over a hundred million dollars when I was 25. Um, and it's, it wasn't that important uh, because I never did it for the money. Uh, I, I think money is a wonderful thing because it enables you to do things. It enables you to in, invest in ideas that don't have a short-term payback and things like that. But especially at that point in my life, it was, it was not the most important thing. The most important thing was the company, the people, the products we were making, what we were going to enable people to do with these products. So uh, I didn't think about it a great deal. You know, I never sold any stock and just really believed that the company would, would do very well over the long term. Central to the development of the personal computer was the pioneering work being done at Xerox's Palo Alto Research Center, which Steve first visited in 1979. I had three or four people who kept bugging me that I ought to get my rear over to Xerox Park and see what they were doing. And uh, so I finally did. I went over there. And... They were very kind, and they showed me what they were working on. And they showed me, really, uh, three things. But I was so blinded by the first one that I didn't even really see the other two. Uh, one of the things they showed me was object-oriented programming. They showed me that, but I didn't even see that. The other one they showed me was really a networked computer system. They had over 100 Alto computers, all networked, using email, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't even see that. I was so blinded by the first thing they showed me, which was the graphical user interface. I thought it was the best thing I had ever seen in my life. Now, remember, it was very flawed. What we saw was incomplete. They'd done a bunch of things wrong, but we didn't know that at the time. It's still, though, they had the germ of the, of the idea was there, and they'd done it very well. And within, you know, 10 minutes it was obvious to me that all computers would work like this someday. It was, it was obvious. I mean, you could argue about how many years it would take. You could argue about who the winners and losers might be. But it, you couldn't argue about the inevitability of it. It was so obvious. You would have felt the same way had you been there. You know, that's, those are the exact words that Paul Allen used. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah, it was obvious. And, but there were two, two visits. You saw it, then you brought some people back mm -hmm. with you. Yeah. And uh, what, what happened this next time? They made you cool your heels for a while. No. No? Well, Adele Goldberg says otherwise. What do you mean? Well, she did the demo when right. the group came back, and she uh -huh. said that, that she argued against doing it for three hours. And they took you other places and showed you other things while she was arguing. Oh, oh, you mean they were reluctant to show us the demo? She was. Oh, yeah. okay. Oh, I, don't, I have no idea. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't remember that. I so, thought you meant something else. So they were very skillful. 
<laughs> yeah. But they did show us. Yeah. So, um, and it's good that they showed us because the, the technology crashed and burned at Xerox. And what? They used to call the, what's that? No, I was just... Why? Yeah, why? Oh, very, I actually thought a lot about that. And uh, I, I learned more about that with John Scully later on. And I, I think I understand it now pretty well. What happens is, like with John Scully, um, John came from PepsiCo. And they, they at most would change their product, you know, once every 10 years. I mean, to them, a new product was like a new size bottle, right? So if you were a product person, you couldn't change the course of that company very much. So who influenced the success of PepsiCo? The sales and marketing people. Therefore, they were the ones that got promoted, and therefore, they were the ones that ran the company. Well, for PepsiCo, that might have been okay, but... It turns out the same thing can happen in technology companies that get, get monopolies, like, oh, IBM and Xerox. If you were a product person at IBM or Xerox, so you make a better copy or a better computer. So what? When you have a monopoly market share, the company's not any more successful. So the people that can make the company more successful are sales and marketing people, and they end up running the companies. And the product people get driven out of the decision-making forums. And the companies forget what it means to make great products. It, sort of the product sensibility and the, the product genius that brought them to, the, to that monopolistic position gets rotted out by people running these companies who have no conception of a good product versus a bad product. They have no conception of the craftsmanship that's required to take a good idea and turn it into a good product. And they really have no feeling in their hearts, usually, about wanting to really help the customers. So that's what happened at Xerox. The, the people at Xerox Park used to call the people that ran Xerox toner heads. Uh, and, they just had, and these toner heads would come out to Xerox Park, and they just had no clue about what they were seeing. And for our, our audience, toner is what? Oh, toner. Toner is what you put into a copier. Yeah, the, you know, the toner that you add. To, a, to an industrial copier? The black stuff. The black stuff, yeah. yeah. So the, the basically, they were copier heads that just yeah. had no clue about uh, a computer or what it could do. And so they, they just grabbed, uh, grabbed defeat from the greatest victory in the computer industry. Xerox could have owned the entire computer industry today. Um, could have been you know, a company 10 times its size. Could have been IBM. Could have been the IBM of the 90s. Could have been the Microsoft of the 90s. So... Um, but anyway, that's all ancient history. It doesn't really matter anymore. Sure. You mentioned IBM. When, when IBM entered the market, was that a daunting thing at, for you at Apple? Oh, sure. Um, I mean, here was Apple, uh, you know, a $1 billion company, and here was IBM at that time, probably about a 30-some-odd billion dollar company entering the market. Sure it was. It was very scary. Uh, we made a very big mistake, though. The, IBM's first product was terrible. It was really bad. And we made a mistake of, uh, of not realizing that a lot of other people had a very strong vested interest in helping IBM make it better. So uh, if it had just been up to IBM, they would have crashed and burned. But IBM did have, a, I think, a genius in their approach, which was to have a lot of other people have a vested interest in their success. And that's what saved them in the end. So you came back from uh, visiting Xerox Park with a vision. Mm -hmm. And how did you implement the vision? Well, um, I got our best people together and started to get them working on this. The problem was that we'd hired a bunch of people from Hewlett Packard. 
And um, they didn't get this idea. They didn't get it. I remember having dramatic arguments with some of these people who thought the coolest thing in user interface was soft keys at the bottom of a screen. You know, They had no concept of proportionally spaced fonts, no concept of a mouse. As a matter of fact, I remember arguing with these folks, people screaming at me that it would take us five years to engineer a mouse and it would cost $300 to build. And I finally got fed up. I just went outside and found David Kelly Design and uh, asked him to design me a mouse. And in 90 days, we had a mouse we could build for 15 bucks that was phenomenally reliable. So I found that, in a way, Apple, Apple did not have the caliber of people that was necessary to seize this idea in many ways. And there was a core team that did, but there was a, a larger team that most had, mostly had come from Hewlett-Packard that, that didn't have a clue. Well, this it becomes this issue of professionalism. There's a dark side and a light side to it, isn't well, it? No, you know what it is? No, it's not dark and light. It's that people get confused. Companies get confused. When they start getting bigger, they want to replicate their initial success. And a lot of them think, well, somehow there's some magic in the process of how that success was created. So they start to try to institutionalize process across the company. And before very long, people get very confused that the process is the content. And that's ultimately the downfall of IBM. IBM has the best process people in the world. They just forgot about the content. And that's what happened a little bit at Apple, too. We had a lot of people who were great at management process. They just didn't have a clue as to the content. And in my career, I found that the best people you know, are the ones that really understand the content, and they're a pain in the butt to manage. You know? But you put up with it because they're so great at the content. And that's what makes great products. It's not process, it's content. So we had a little bit of that problem at Apple. And that problem eventually resulted in, in the Lisa, which had its moments of brilliance. In a way, it was very far ahead of its time. But there wasn't enough fundamental content understanding. Apple drifted too far away from its roots. To Hewlett, these Hewlett Packard guys, $10,000 was cheap. To our market, to our distribution channels, $10,000 was impossible. So we produced a product that was a complete mismatch for the culture of our company, for the image of our company, for the distribution channels of our company, for our current customers. None of them could afford a product like that. And it, it failed. Um, now, you and, and, and John Couch right. fought for leadership of the Absolutely, Lisa. and I lost. That's correct. How, how did that come about? Well, I thought Lisa was, was in serious trouble. I thought Lisa was going off in this very bad direction, as I've just described. And um, uh, I could not convince enough people in the senior management of Apple that that was the case. And we ran the place as a team, for the most part. Uh, so I lost. And um, at that point in time, you know, I, I brooded for a few months. But it, it, was, it was not very long after that that it really occurred to me that if we didn't do something here, the Apple II was running out of gas. And we needed to do something with this technology fast, or else Apple might cease to exist as the company that it was. 
And so I formed a small team to do the Macintosh. And, you know, we, we were on a mission from God, you know, to save Apple. No one else thought so, but it turned out we were right. And it, as we evolved the Mac, it, it became very clear that it, this was also a way of reinventing Apple. We, we reinvented everything. We reinvented manufacturing. I, made, I visited probably 80 automated factories in Japan, and we built the world's first automated computer factory in the world in California here. So we adopted the uh, 68,000 microprocessor that Lisa had. We negotiated a price that was a fifth of what Lisa was going to pay for it because we were going to use it in much higher volume. And we really started to design this product that could be sold for $1,000 uh, called the Macintosh. And um, we didn't make it. We, we could have sold it at $2,000, although we came out at $2,500. And um, you know, we spent four years of our life doing that. We built the product. We built the automated factory, the machine to build the machine. Uh, we built a completely new distribution system. We built a completely different marketing approach. And um, you know, I think it worked pretty well. Now, you motivated this team. I mean, you had to guide them. Uh, we had know, to build the team. Yeah, we build a team, uh, motivate it, guide them, mm -hmm. deal with them. You know, we we we've interviewed just lots and lots of people from the mm -hmm. Macintosh team. Good. And, and, uh, and you know, what it keeps coming down to is, is your passion, your vision, and, and, you know, how do you order your priorities in there? What, what, what's important to you in the development of a product? You know, one of the things that really hurt Apple was after I left, John Scully got a very serious disease. And that disease, I've seen other people get it too, it's, um, it's the disease of thinking that a really great idea is 90% of the work. And that if you just tell your, all these other people, you know, here's this great idea, then, of course, they can go off and make it happen. And the problem with that is, is that there's a, just a tremendous amount of craftsmanship in, in between a great idea and a great product. And as you evolve that great idea, it changes and grows. It never comes out like it starts, because you learn a lot more as you get into the subtleties of it. And you also find there's tremendous trade-offs that you have to make. I mean, you know, there are, there are just certain things you you can't make electrons do. There are certain things you can't make plastic do or glass do. And, and, and as you get into, or factories do, or robots do. And as you get into all these things, designing a product is keeping 5,000 things in your brain, these concepts, and fit, fitting them all together in, in, in kind of continuing to push to fit them together in new and different ways to get what you want. And every day you discover something new that is a new problem or a new opportunity to fit these things together a little differently. And it's that process that is the magic. Um, and so we had a lot of great ideas when we started. But what I've always felt that a team of people doing something they really believe in is like, is, is like when I was a young kid, um, there was a... Um, a widowed man that lived up the street. And uh, he was in his 
80s. Uh, he's a little scary looking. And, and I got to know him a little bit. Um, I think he might have paid me to cut his mow his lawn or something. And one day he said, come on into my garage, I want to show you something. And he pulled out this dusty old rock tumbler. It was a, a motor and a, and, a, and a coffee can and a little you know, band between them. And, and he said, come on with me. We went out to the back and we got some, just some rocks, some regular old ugly rocks. And, he, and we put them in the can with a little bit of, uh, of liquid and a little bit of, uh, of uh, grit powder. And um, we closed the can up, and, and he turned this motor on. He said, come back tomorrow. And his can was making a you know, racket as the stones went around. And I came back the next day, and we, took, we opened the can, and we took out these amazingly beautiful polished rocks. Um, the same common stones that had gone in through rubbing against each other like this, creating a little bit of friction, creating a little bit of noise, had come out these beautiful polished rocks. And that's always been, in my mind, my metaphor for a team working really hard on something they're passionate about, is, is that it's through the team, through that group of incredibly talented people, bumping up against each other, having arguments, having fights sometimes, making some noise, and working together, they polish each other, and they polish the ideas, and what comes out are these really beautiful stones. So, it's hard to explain, um, and it's certainly not the result of one person. I mean, people like symbols, so I'm the symbol of certain things, but it really was a team effort on the Mac. Now, in my life, I I observed something fairly early on uh, at Apple, um, which I didn't know how to explain it then, but I've thought a lot about it since. If you, most things in life, the dynamic range between average and the best is at most two to one. Right? Like if you go to New York City and you get an average taxi cab driver versus the best taxi cab driver, you know, you're probably going to get to your destination with the best taxi cab maybe 30% faster. You know, in an automobile, what's the difference between an average and the best? Maybe, I don't know, 20%. Uh, the best CD player and an average CD player, I don't know, 20%. So two to one is a big, big dynamic range in, in most of life. Um, in software, and it used to be the case in hardware too, the difference between average and the best is 50 to one, maybe 100 to one. Easy. Okay? Yeah. I've n- very few things in life are like this, but what I was lucky enough to spend my life in is like this. And so I've built a lot of my success off finding these truly gifted people and not settling for B and C players, but really going for the A players. And I found something. I found that when you get enough A players together, when you go through the incredible work to find five of these A players, they really like working with each other because they've never had a chance to do that before. And they don't want to work with B and C players. And so it becomes self-policing. And they only want to hire more A players. And so you build up these pockets of A players, and it propagates. And that's what the Mac team was like. They were all A players. And um, these were extraordinarily talented people. So, But there are also people who now say that they don't have the energy anymore to work for you. Mm-hmm. 
Sure. Oh, I, I think if you talk to a lot of people on the Mac team, they will tell you um, it was the hardest they've ever worked in their life. Some of them will tell you it was you know, the happiest they've ever been in their life. But I think all of them will tell you that it is certainly one of the most intense and cherished experiences they will ever have in their life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they uh, did. So, you know, it's... Uh, some of those things you, you are not sustainable for some people. What, what does it mean when you tell someone their work is shit? Uh, it usually means their work is shit. Sometimes it means I think your work is shit and I, I'm wrong. <laughs> but uh, uh, usually it means their, their work is not anywhere near good enough. We have this great quote from Bill Atkinson who says, when you say his, someone's work is shit, you really mean, I don't quite understand it. Would you please explain it to me? <laughs> no, that's not usually what I meant. Uh, I, you know, when you get really good people, um, they know they're really good and you don't have to baby people's egos so much. And what really matters is the work. That, and everybody knows that. That's all that matters is the work. So it people are being counted on to do specific pieces of the puzzle. And the most important thing I think you can do for somebody who's really good and who's really being counted on is to point out to them when um, they're not, their work isn't good enough and to do it very clearly and to articulate why uh, and to, to get them back on track. And you need to do that in a way that does not call into question your confidence in their abilities, but leaves not too much room for interpretation that it's their work, the work that they have done for this particular thing is not good enough to support the goal of the team. And that's a hard thing to do. Um, and I've always taken a very direct approach. So, um, and I think if you talk to people that have worked with me, um, the really good people have found it beneficial. Uh, some people have hated it, you know. But, um, and I'm also one of these people that I, I don't really care about being right, you know. I just care about success. So, you'll find a lot of people that will tell you that uh, I had a very strong opinion and uh, they you know, presented evidence to the contrary and five minutes later I completely changed my mind. Because I'm like that. I don't mind being wrong. Uh, and I'll admit that I'm wrong a lot. It doesn't really matter to me too much. What matters to me is that we do the right thing. So how and why did Apple get into desktop publishing, which would become the Mac's killer app? I don't know if you know this, but we got the first Canon laser printer engine shipped in the United States at Apple, and we had it hooked up to Elisa actually imaging pages before anybody, before HP, long before HP, long before Adobe. But I, I heard a few times people would tell me, hey, there's these guys over in this garage that left Xerox Park, you ought to go see them. And I finally went and saw them, and um, I saw what they were doing, and it was better than what we were doing. And they were going to be a hardware company. They wanted to make printers and the whole thing. And so what I, I talked them into being a software company. And we, um, within two or three weeks, uh, we had canceled our internal project. And a bunch of people wanted to kill me over this, but we did it. And uh, 
I had cut a deal with Adobe to use their software, and we bought 19.9% of Adobe at Apple. They needed some financing. We wanted a little bit of control. And uh, we were off to the races, and so we got the engines from Canon. We designed the first laser printer controller at Apple, uh, and we got the software from Adobe, and we introduced the laser writer. And no one at the company wanted to do it, but, uh, but a few of us in the Mac group. Everybody thought a $7,000 printer was crazy. What they didn't understand was you could share it with Apple Talk. I mean, they understood it intellectually, but they didn't understand it viscerally, because the last really expensive thing we tried to sell was Lisa. So we pushed this thing through, and I had to basically do it over a few dead bodies, but we pushed this thing through, and, and it, it was the first laser printer on the market, as you know. And um, you know, the rest is history. When I left Apple, Apple was the largest printer company by rep, measured by revenue in the world. Wow. It lost that distinction to Hewlett Packard about uh, three, four years after I left, unfortunately. But uh, when I left, it was the largest printer company in the world. Did you envision desktop publishing? Was that a, a, a no-brainer? You know, yes, but we also envisioned really the networked office. Mm -hmm. And so in January of 1995, when we had our annual meeting and introduced our new products, I made probably the largest marketing blunder of my career. 1985. 1985, sorry. Yeah. Uh, made probably the largest marketing blunder in my career by announcing the Macintosh office instead of just desktop publishing. Mm. And uh, we had desktop publishing as a major component of that, but we announced a bunch of other stuff uh, as well, and I think we should have just focused on desktop publishing at that time. After serious disagreements with Apple's CEO John Scully, Steve left the company in 1985. Tell so. us about your departure from Apple. Oh, it was, it was very painful. I'm not even sure I want to talk about it. Um, what can I say? I hired the wrong guy. That was Scully? Yeah. And uh, he destroyed everything I'd spent 10 years working for, um, starting with me. But that wasn't the saddest part. Uh, I would have gladly left Apple if Apple would have turned out like I'd wanted it to. Um, he basically got on a rocket ship that was about to leave the pad, and the rocket ship left the pad, and um, it kind of went to his head. He got confused and thought that he built the rocket ship. Um, and then he kind of sort of changed the trajectory so that it was inevitably going to crash into the ground. Well, it was always the in the pre-Macintosh days and the early Macintosh days, there was always the Steve and John show. You know, you two right. were kind of joined at the hip for That's a while right. there. And then something happened to split you. What was That's that? That's correct. What was that well, catalyst? Well, what happened was that the industry went into a recession in late 1984. Sales started seriously contracting. And John didn't know what to do. He had not a clue. And there was a leadership vacuum at the top of Apple. Uh, there were fairly strong general managers running the divisions. I was running the Macintosh division. Somebody else was running the Apple II division, et cetera. There were some problems with some of the divisions. There was a person running the storage division that was completely out to lunch, and a bunch of things that needed to be changed. But all of those 
problems got put in a pressure cooker because of this contraction in the marketplace. And there was no leadership. And um, John was in a situation where the board was not happy and where he was probably not long for the company. And one thing I did not ever see about John uh, until that time was he had an incredible survival instinct. Uh, somebody once told me, this guy didn't get to be this, you know, the president of PepsiCo w without these kinds of instincts. And, um, and it was true. And John decided that um, a really good person to be the root of all these problems would be me. And so uh, we, we came to loggerheads. And uh, John had cultivated a very close relationship with the board. Um, and they believed him. So that's what happened. So there were competing visions for the company. Oh, clearly. And, and well, not so much competing visions for the company, because I don't think John had a vision for the company. Well, I guess I'm, sure, I'm asking, what was your vision that, yeah. that lost out in this instance? It, it wasn't an issue of vision. It was an issue um, of execution, in the sense that uh, my belief was that Apple needed much stronger leadership uh, to sort of unite these various factions that we created with the divisions, that the Macintosh was the future of Apple, that we needed to rein back expenses dramatically in the Apple II area, that we needed to be spending very heavily in the Macintosh area, um, things like that. And John's vision was that um, he should remain the CEO of the company. <laughs> and anything that would help him do that would, would be acceptable. So uh, I think that uh, you know, Apple was in a state of paralysis in the early part of 1985. And I wasn't at that time capable, I don't think, of running the company as a whole. You know, I was 30 years old, and I don't think I had enough experience to run a $2 billion company. Um, unfortunately, John didn't either. And um, so anyway, I, I, uh, I was told in no uncertain terms that there was no job for me. It was really, really tragic. Siberia. Uh, yeah, it, it would have been far smarter for Apple to sort of, you know, let me work on the next. I volunteered. I said, why don't I start a research division, and uh, you know, give me a few million bucks a year, and I'll go hire some really great people, and we'll do the next great thing. And I was told there was no opportunity to do that. Oh wow. So, uh, and my office was taken away. It was, it was. Uh, I mean, I'll get real emotional if we keep talking about this. So. Anyway, that, that, but that's irrelevant. I'm just one person, and the company was a lot more people than me. So that, that's not the important part. The important part was the values of Apple you know, over the next several years were systematically destroyed. I then asked Steve for his thoughts on the state of Apple. Remember, this was 1995, a year before he would go back to Apple. Remember, too, that when Apple bought Next a year after this interview, Steve immediately sold the Apple stock he received as part of the sale. Apple's dying today. Apple's dying a very painful death. Uh, it's on a glide slope to, to die. 
And uh, the reason is, is because, you know, when I walked out the door at Apple, we had a 10-year lead on everybody else in the industry. Macintosh was 10 years ahead. I, you know, we watched Microsoft take 10 years to catch up with it. Well, the reason that they could catch up with it was because Apple stood still. I mean, the Macintosh that's shipping today is like, you know, 25% different than the day I left. They've spent hundreds of millions of dollars a year on R&D. I mean, a, you know, a total of probably $5 billion on R&D. What did they get for it? I don't know. But it was... The, what happened was the, the, the understanding of how to move these things forward and how to create these new products somehow evaporated. And I think a lot of the good people stuck around for a while, but there wasn't an opportunity to get together and do this because uh, there wasn't any, any leadership to do that. So what's happened with Apple now is, is that they've, they've fallen behind uh, in, in many respects, certainly in market share. And, and most importantly, their differentiation has, has, has been eroded by Microsoft. And so what they have now is they have their installed base, which is not growing and which is shrinking slowly, but will provide a... a you know, a, a, a good revenue stream for several years, but it's a glide slope that's just going to go like this. Yeah. So, um, it's unfortunate. And I, I don't really think it's reversible at this point in time. That's why. What about Microsoft? I mean, that's the juggernaut now. Right. And it's, you know, and it, it's, it's, it's a kind of a, you know, Ford LTD going into the, into the future. It's definitely not a Cadillac. It's not a BMW, it's yeah. it's just you know what what's going on there? How do those guys do that? Well, Microsoft's orbit was made possible by a Saturn V booster called IBM. And uh, I know Bill would get upset with me for saying this, but of course it was true. Yeah. And. Um, much to Bill and Microsoft's credit, they used that fantastic opportunity to create more opportunity for themselves. Uh, most people don't remember, but in 19, until 1984 with the Mac, Microsoft was not in the applications business. It was dominated by Lotus. And Microsoft took a big gamble to write for the Mac. And they came out with applications that were terrible. But they kept at it, and they made them better, and eventually they dominated the Macintosh application market, and then used a springboard of of Windows to get into the PC market with those same applications. And now they dominate the applications in the PC space too. So they have two characteristics. I think they're very strong opportunists. And I don't mean that in a bad way. And two, they're like the Japanese. They just keep on coming. Now they were able to do that because of the revenue stream from the IBM deal. Uh, but nonetheless, they, they made the most of it. And I, I give them a lot of credit for that. The only problem with Microsoft is they just have no taste. They have absolutely no taste. And, and, and what that means is, I don't mean that in a small way, I mean that in a big way, in the sense that they, they don't think of original ideas and they don't bring much culture into their product. Um, and, and you say, well, wh why is that important? Well, you know, proportionally spaced fonts come from typesetting and beautiful books. That's where one gets the idea. If it weren't for the Mac, they would never have that in their products. Um, and so I, I guess 
I am saddened, not by Microsoft's success. I have no problem with their success. They've earned their success, for the most part. I have a problem with the fact that they just make really third-rate products. Their products have no spirit to them. Their products have no in, sort of spirit of enlightenment about them. They are very pedestrian. And the sad part is, is that most customers don't, don't have a lot of that spirit either. But, it, but the way that we're going to ratchet up our species is to take the best and to spread it around to everybody so that everybody grows up with better things and uh, starts to understand the subtlety of these better things. Um, and, and Microsoft's just, you know, it's McDonald's. So um, that's what saddens me. Not that Microsoft is one, but that uh, Microsoft's products don't display more um, more insight and, and more creativity. So what are you doing about it? Tell us about Next. Well, I'm not doing anything about it. Okay. Uh, because Next is too small of a company to do anything about that. Um, I'm just watching it. And uh, there's, there's really nothing I can do about it. Next, we talked about Next, the company Steve was running in 1995, which Apple was soon to buy. Next software would become the heart of the Mac in the form of OS X. You don't really want to hear about Next, do you? Yes, I do. You do? Okay. Um, well, maybe the best thing to spend much time is I can just tell you what Next is today. Yeah, uh, the whole that's history. The... the There hasn't been. Clearly, the, the innovation in the computer industry is happening in software right now. And there, haven't, there hasn't been a revolution in how we create software in a long. Oh, sorry. <coughs> sorry. Um, the innovation in the industry is in software, and there hasn't ever been a real revolution in how we created software, certainly not in the last 20 years. Matter of fact, it's gotten worse. While the Macintosh was a revolution for the end user to make it easier to use, it, it was the opposite for the developer. The developer paid the price, and software got much more complicated to write as it became easier to use for the end user. So, software is, is infiltrating everything we do these days. Uh, in businesses, software is one of the most potent competitive weapons. I mean, t the most successful business war was friends and family, MCI's friends and family, you know, in the last 10 years. And what was that? It was a brilliant idea, and it was custom billing software. AT&T didn't respond for 18 months, yielding billions of dollars worth of market share to MCI, not because they were stupid, but because they couldn't get the billing software done. So in, in, in ways like that, and in smaller ways, Software is becoming an incredible force in this world um, to provide new goods and services to people, whether it's over the internet or you know what have you. Software is going to be an, a major enabler in our society. We have taken another one of those brilliant original ideas at Xerox Park that I saw in 1979, but didn't see really clearly then, called object-oriented technology, and we have perfected it and commercialized it. 
here and become the biggest supplier of it to the market. And this, this object technology lets you build software 10 times faster. And it's better. And um, so that's what we do. And we've got a small to medium-sized business. I and mean, we're the largest supplier of objects. But you know, we're a 50 to $75 million company. Got about 300 people. And that's what we do. And the, the, the end of the third show, actually, is the one moment where we do look into the future. Because uh -huh. Channel 4 has asked us to do that. Sure. And uh, so what's your vision of you know, 10 years from now with this technology that you're, that you're developing? Well, you know, I think the internet and the web, there are two exciting things happening in software and, and in computing today. I think one is objects, but the other one is the web. The web is incredibly exciting because it is the, the fulfillment of a lot of our dreams that the computer would ultimately not be primarily a device for computation, but metamorphosize into a device for communication. And the, with the web, that's finally happening. Um, and secondly, it's exciting because Microsoft doesn't own it, and therefore there's a tremendous amount of innovation happening. So I think uh, that the web is going to be profound in what it does to our society. As you know, about 15% of the goods and services in the U.S. are sold via catalogs or over the television. All that's going to go on the web and more. Billions and billions, soon tens of billions of dollars worth of goods and services are going to be sold on the web. If you could th a way to think about it is it is the ultimate direct-to-customer distribution channel. It, another way to think about it is the smallest company in the world can look as large as the largest company in the world on the web. So I guess um, I think the web, as we look back 10 years from now, the web is going to be the defining technology, the defining social, uh, um, the defining social moment for computing. And um, I think it's going to be huge. I think it's breathed a whole new generation of life into personal computing. And um, I think it's going to be huge. Yeah. And you're making software that... Oh, absolutely. But so is everybody. I mean, just yeah. forget about what we're doing. Just yeah. as an industry, the web is going to open a whole new door mm -hmm. to this industry. Yeah. And it's another one of those things that it's obvious once it happens. But five years ago, who would have guessed? Right. That's right. Isn't this a wonderful place we live in? I was keen to know about Steve's passion. What drove him? I read an article when I was very young in Scientific American, and it, um, it measured the efficiency of locomotion for various species on the planet. So for, you know, bears and chimpanzees and raccoons and birds and fish, how many kilocalories per kilometer did they spend to move? And, and, and humans were measured, too. And... Uh, the condor won. It was the most efficient. And uh, mankind, the crown of creation, came in with a rather unimpressive showing about a third of the way down the list. Um, but somebody there had the brilliance to test a human riding a bicycle. Blew away the condor. All the way off the charts. And I remember this really had an impact on me. I, I really remember this, that humans are tool builders. And we build tools that can dramatically amplify our innate human abilities. And to me, we, we actually ran an ad like this very early at Apple, that the, the personal computer was the bicycle of the mind. And I believe that with every bone in my body, that, that of all the inventions of humans, 
the computer is going to rank near, if not at the top, as history unfolds and we look back. And it is the most awesome tool that we have ever invented. And, and I feel incredibly lucky to be at exactly the right place in Silicon Valley, at exactly the right time, historically, where this invention has, has taken form. And, and as you know, when, when you set a vector off in space, if you can change its direction a little bit at the beginning, it, it's dramatic when it gets a few miles out in space. I feel we've been, we, we are still really at the beginning of that vector. And if we can nudge it in the right directions, uh, it will be a much better thing uh, as, it, as it progresses on. And, and I look, you know, I think we've had a chance to do that a few times. And, uh, and it, it brings, I think, all of us associated with it tremendous satisfaction. But how do you know what's the right direction? You know, ultimately it comes down to taste. It comes down to taste. It's, it comes down to trying to expose yourself to the best things that humans have done and then try to bring those things in to what you're doing. I mean, Picasso had a saying, he said, good artists copy, great artists steal. And we have, you know, always been shameless about stealing great ideas. Um, and I think part of what made the Macintosh great was that the people working on it were musicians and poets and artists and zoologists and historians who also happened to be the best computer scientists in the world. But if it hadn't been for computer science, these people would have all been, you know, doing amazing things in life in other fields. And they brought with them, we all brought to this, uh, to this effort, uh, a very liberal arts at sort of air, a very, a very um, liberal arts attitude that we wanted to pull in the best that we saw in these other fields into this field. And um, I don't think you get that if you are very narrow. One of the questions I asked everyone in the series was, are you a hippie or a nerd? Oh, if I had to pick one of those two, I'm clearly a hippie. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that and 30 and all, seconds. All, all the people I work with were clearly in that category, too. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, why? I mean, is it, do, you, do you seek out hippies or they are attracted to you? Well, ask yourself, what is a hippie? Um, I mean, this is an old word that has a lot of connotations, but to me, you know, because I grew up, so, I mean, remember that the 60s happened in the early 70s, right? So we have to remember that. And that's sort of when I came of age. So I saw a lot of this. And, uh, you know, a lot of it happened right in our backyard here. Um, so to me, the spark of that was that there was something beyond sort of what you see every day. There's something going on here in life beyond just a job and a family and two cars in the garage and a career. There's something more going on. There's another side of the coin that we don't talk about much and, 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 and we experience it when there's gaps. 
when, when we kind of just aren't really, when everything's not ordered and perfect, when there's kind of a gap, you experience this inrush of something. And, and a lot of people have set off throughout history to find out what that was. You know, whether it's Thoreau or whether it's, you know, some Indian mystics or whoever it might be. And, and the hippie movement got a little bit of that and they wanted to find out what that was about and that life wasn't about what they saw their parents doing. And of course the pendulum swung too far the other way and it was crazy, but there was a germ of something there. And um, it's, it's the same thing that causes people to want to be poets instead of bankers, you know? And, and I think that's a wonderful thing. And I think that that same spirit can be put into products. And those products can be manufactured and given to people, and they can sense that spirit. I mean, if you talk to people that use the Macintosh, they love it. I mean, you don't hear people loving thing products very often, you know, really. But, but you could feel it in there. There was something really wonderful there. So, um, I, I don't think that most of the really best people that I've worked with have worked with computers for the sake of working with computers. They've worked with computers because they are the medium that is best capable of transmitting some feeling that you have, that you want to share with other people. Does that make any sense to you? Oh, yeah. And, you know, before they invented these things, uh, all these people would have done other, other things. But, but, they, but computers were invented, and they did come along, and all these people did get interested in, in school or before school, and, 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 and said, hey, this is the medium that I think I can say something in. Mm -hmm. You know? 